Today's episode is brought to you by BetterHelp, which provides affordable, private online counseling. You can sign up at betterhelp.com slash best to let them know we sent you and get unlimited access to a licensed, trained, fully accredited therapist on your phone and computer through text, voice, or video chat. And now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the culture of fear that just may be at the core of our political problems that span across the globe right now. Clips today come from This Is Hell, The Brian Lehrer Show, a portion of a progressive faith sermon from Dr. Roger Ray, and a part of Barack Obama's speech at the Nelson Mandela Centennial Celebration. The way fear evolved, the way our brain evolved, we have to have an ability to process risk very, very quickly. Because if you're an animal and you are the potential victim of a predator that wants to eat you, you're going to survive much better if you can work out in milliseconds that you're under threat. And you can work out much better if you're, you can survive much better if your body goes into survival mode without you even having to think about it. And so the way we've evolved, the way we've evolved as animals in a survival of the fittest world is we have very, very, very quick fear identification responses. And our bodies change. Our brains release a whole bunch of chemicals. Our heart rate changes. Our blood pressure changes. The way we focus our eyes shifts. We get much more narrow in our focus. And even our muscles change. We, the, our blood is channeled into the muscles. So we literally armor ourselves up. In a moment of fear, we make our bodies harder. Now, all of that's good for survival in the wild. The problem is that we're not in the wild anymore. We're a complex, <laughs> technologically-based society, and the threats that we face are complicated. They involve evaluating risks of climate change, for example, or evaluating the risk of nuclear war and how to prevent nuclear war, or evaluating very complicated health data. And the thing is, our brains aren't necessarily very well equipped to do that. So we always overestimate risk if we're presented with a threat no matter how remote that threat is, once it's in our consciousness, it sort of is there and it gnaws away and it tends to crowd out competing emotions or competing calculations. And so if we get presented with images of fear all the time, if we turn on the TV and the stories of crime or of terrorism, we go onto our cell phones or our tablets and there are Facebook feeds and Twitter feeds about the local or the international event of horror of the moment, our brains get saturated with fear. And fear chemicals are released, and our bodies respond as if we're in a state of permanent threat. And when we're in that physical and psychological state, we don't make nuanced decisions. So we overwhelmingly go towards simplicity, for example, which is why in the political moment, someone like Donald Trump, who thrives on creating and exacerbating and magnifying fear, Trump does very well in this environment because he gets people very, very scared, and he taps into these veins of communal fear and then he says, I have an easy solution. It doesn't matter how ludicrous that solution is. The fact that he can go out there and say, I will ban all Muslims and terrorism will be solved. Or I will dip bullets in pig's blood like General Pershing and I will collectively shoot a bunch of terrorism suspects and radical Islamic terrorism will be solved. Or I will build a wall with Mexico and suddenly all the complicated problems of mass migration will be solved. All of those um, solutions, when you actually think about them, they don't make any sense at all. But if you can gin an audience up to a state of heightened fear, heightened alert, 
that audience is ready for a demagogic message. And that's what Trump does to perfection. So no, I don't think it helps us survive in the modern world. I think what it does is it lowers our ability to make careful, sensible decisions. How much is increasing inequality leading to increasing fear? How much does the state of inequality here in the United States today, the wealth disparity here in the United States, the income disparity here in the United States, how much uh, does that create a fertile environment for somebody like Trump to exploit fear? Oh, tremendously, because the more inequality goes up, the more we cease to have shared experiences. So if you're in a community where people basically are going through the same life patterns and the same life experiences, it's very easy to empathize across class lines or across race lines or across religious lines. But if you're in an environment where there is no point of overlap, if you imagine a Venn diagram and suddenly the circles are sort of getting further and further apart and that point of overlap is being reduced to almost nothing, it becomes very, very easy to think of somebody who's a little bit different from you as completely different from you. And so that sort of idea of a common bond disintegrates. And so if you've got something to protect, you've got some money in your bank account, you've got some property of value, you get more and more scared of people with nothing because you fear, maybe rightly, maybe wrongly, but you fear that what is yours, they will want as theirs. And so you lock yourself down, you go into gated communities, you hire private security, you take your kids out of public schools so they're not contaminated by the masses, you put them into elite private schools, you, to the maximum extent possible, divorce yourself from the rest of the community. And in that environment, you become fearful. You become fearful of that person walking down the street who looks like they might be up to no good. You become fearful of that young African-American male in your white neighborhood because you fear that they're up to no good. So all of the stereotypes, all of the cliches, all of the things that over hundreds of years have developed to very destructive impact in our culture, in an age of inequality, those stereotypes are magnified. In an age of inequality, those fears are magnified. And so you can't really separate it out. When I started working on this book, you know, some people, some of my friends were asking me, well, you know, you've done all this work on inequality and social injustice. Why are you moving to a completely different area? Fear. And I kept explaining, well, actually, this is just one version of poverty and one version of inequality that happy, egalitarian societies tend not to be fearful. So if you look at the Scandinavian economies or if you look at Iceland or if you look at Uruguay, countries that score very well on the happiness measures, they also tend to have less social inequality. And then you look at the countries that score much lower down on happiness measures, and they tend to be the countries with rampant and growing inequality. So to me, the two are very much interrelated. To what extent do you think people realize that they are making decisions, especially political decisions, out of fear? I think to a large extent. Um, you know, I, I was doing a lot of reporting. I was roaming around the country for this book, and I went to a um, preschool outside Salt Lake City in a very affluent suburb in Utah. And the reason I went to the preschool was it was a Montessori school. And usually Montessori schools, when they market to parents, they market their educational philosophy and their liberal, maybe touchy-feely educational philosophy. And this Montessori school was going down a different route. It was marketing its security. And it had this massive wall that was around its um, play yard so that the kids couldn't see these beautiful Wasatch mountain range just outside. It had this incredibly complicated entry-exit system involving fingerprints and computer monitoring and everything else. It had a bank of computer cameras in every single room so that 
parents could stand in the foyer and look at these computer feeds of their kids to make sure they weren't being bullied or harassed. And then it had equipped all of its teachers with bear spray, the spray that hunters use to scare off bears that get too close, just in case a predator came into the room and the teachers at short notice had to respond. And I asked several of the parents, why, you know, why is this so attractive to you? And they kept telling me about these images of fear that they saw on Facebook and on local news in particular. And so I said to some of them, look, you know, without minimizing your, your sense of fear, if you just look at the numbers, the world was a way riskier place when you were growing up 30 years ago than it is today. You look at the crime data, violent crime rates in the 1970s and 80s were far higher than they are today. And several of the parents said, look, intellectually, I know that. They, some, some of them actually had criminal justice degrees. And they said, look, I know the numbers, but I see it on TV and I see it on Facebook all the time, and it scares me. And one of the most illuminating interviews I did was with a young woman who had sort of gone into a panic mode. I think what had triggered it was one of the um, mass shootings um, at a cinema. There'd, there'd been a shooting at a cinema a few years back um, in Aurora, Colorado, I think. And she'd gone into this sort of almost PTSD state where she kept expecting a mass shooting and she kept watching the news and she kept reading Facebook feeds about crime. And it made her more and more and more fearful. And then she said to me, look, I had this awakening at some point that I couldn't live my life like this. And so I stopped watching local TV news. And I said, and how did it make you feel? And she said, I felt much happier and much healthier ever since. And she changed the way she behaved. She changed the way she parented. She was willing to give her kids much more leeway because she had realized that there was this disjunct between the reality, which was a fairly low crime rate, and the perception that was fueled by media and fueled by social media especially, that crime was everywhere. And she'd worked out a healthier way to live. So I do think that on one level, a lot of people do have this awareness that they're sort of being fed something. They're being fed a profitable spin line. But on another level, they're hooked on it. And we're all hooked on it. It's sort of our adrenaline rush for our age. In the 21st century, we get our rushes oftentimes through triggering our fear responses via the media. Tell us more about your inner life and your observation of your inner life on election night. Well, you know, what I realized was that fear can have a good effect. That is, it can target things that are really important and it can get you to work to actually protect the things that you love and care about. But fear is a very volatile emotion. It goes back to infancy and often it infantilizes us and it makes us out of control and we uh, go go wild and we target all kinds of things that are not very constructive. And I think that fear is particularly difficult for a democracy because a democracy Democracy needs citizens who have a certain amount of confidence, who do not feel helpless and terrified, who really believe that they can solve the problems. Uh, by contrast, uh, absolute monarchy feeds on fear. Monarchs want their people to be afraid. And of course, when people are afraid, 
by the same token, they want to turn things over to that absolute monarch and let that person take care of things for them. So that's what I kind of saw happening in America around me, that there was this mood of, of panic that got out of control and that is not helping us actually solve our problems. I'm struck by the contrast between President Franklin Roosevelt and President Trump. Roosevelt came in at a time of crisis and he said, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Trump came in at a time of non-crisis and he said, fear Mexicans, fear Muslims. Right. And he uses these highly emotive words that stoke not just fear, but anger and disgust, words like infestation and vermin and, and so on. And, uh, you know, you don't even need to go back to FDR. You can just look at George W. Bush. After 9-11, he understood, I, I think, that it was crucial to get people calmed down. And he repeatedly said, we need to target criminals. We do not demonize the entirety of a religion or a population. And in fact, he cared so much about that that he created a whole archive of his statements about Islam and Muslims. And I quote quite a lot of them in the book and contrast them mm -hmm. with what President yeah. Trump has been doing. And you're right in the introduction and really throughout the book, that fear is rampant on both sides of the political spectrum. Do you see it expressing itself differently on different sides? Well, you know, I mean, of course, I. it's hard because I do. I'm a Democrat and I do believe that certain issues are, are right and important. But I still see that there's a kind of mistrust, an unwillingness to cooperate. I see it in my students who think, oh, well, if somebody voted for Trump, they must be somebody you can't talk to at all. And that is really fear running wild. And it's uh, making scapegoats out of people who probably have reasons. And, and what we need to do is find out what really is their problem. What can we do together to solve the problem? But that isn't happening uh, on the left uh, as much as on the right, I believe. Do you see a relationship between fear and anger? Yes. Uh, so I think when people feel helpless and they feel that they're terrified and they can't do anything about their lives, the reaction that's very natural is to target somebody as the scapegoat and to try to seize control by getting angry and trying to get retribution against that person. It can be in a personal context. So like if you're getting divorced, it's very natural to think, I'll reclaim my future by just punishing my betraying spouse. And often that actually doesn't help you go forward at all. Uh, so if the idea that anger will help you regain lost control is, I think, an illusion, that the good part of anger is to protest against wrongdoing, but then to move forward and try to fix what's wrong. But very often people get mired in the past and they think, oh, if we just punish the bad guy, then we can seize control. I'm thinking about fake fear and real fear, like fake news and real news. The, yeah, right. The, the fake fear is to say we should fear all refugees because a few of them might be sneaking in to join MSN, MS 
13 or ISIS. <laughs> MSNBC, yeah, you almost Trump said, could, right? Trump, Trump could probably yeah. say that one day. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right, he could. I think the problem is that what we really need to do is to have good facts about the many wonderful contributions immigrants have made to our society. And then we need to also ask why are immigrants trying to enter yeah. this society? What can we do about yes. violence in Central America? But none of that is happening. But instead, there's this drumbeat of right. panic that targets all immigrants for, as you say, the crimes of a and, very small number. And so the real fear is on the other side where ICE and and other branches of the federal government, too, I guess, are just, we just heard it in our last segment, how they're trying so hard to depress applications for citizenship among legal immigrants and people who may have been safe from deportation, even if they were here illegally in the past or being picked up when they deliver pizzas and all kinds of things. So there's fake fear and there's real fear. But there's also grievance politics on on both sides of the aisle, I think it's to say, that's fair to say. So Trump and his white grievance base is an obvious example. But there was a Times op-ed the other day saying civility is overvalued by whites who misremember what worked in the civil rights era. There are a number of books now celebrating anger by women. Uh, in particular, I'm not saying any of this is misplaced, but it's in to be angry all over the political spectrum, to wear anger and grievance on your sleeve and be proud of it, isn't it? Yes, I, I'm afraid that's true, and it always has been a very American thing. I do go back to the civil rights movement in my book, and I think that King had thought in a very subtle and nuanced way about anger. He did think that anger sometimes brought people to his movement who otherwise would be in despair. But he also said repeatedly that once they got to the movement, the anger had to be what he called purified or channelized, meaning it's got to get rid of the idea of retribution, uh, but keep the idea of determined protest against wrongdoing, and that instead of retribution, we seize hold of hope, and work and cooperation. And so that, I think, is is the right attitude. But it's sometimes people portray it as weak. Malcolm X repeatedly did portray it as weak. He said it was like some coffee that it had so much milk poured into it that it was white and cold and isn't even like coffee anymore. So, yeah, people can easily think that, that a determined and calm attitude, which is very courageous, which puts your life on the line, is still weak, and I think that's completely wrong. Today's episode is sponsored by BetterHelp, which provides affordable, private online counseling. When you sign up at betterhelp.com best, you get unlimited access to a licensed, trained, fully accredited therapist on your phone and computer through text, voice, or video chat. And of course, they're LGBT-friendly. It's great for individuals or couples counseling for anything you're going through in life right now, and of course, in this political climate, who couldn't use a little extra help. When you get started, you fill out a questionnaire so they can match you with a counselor who's perfect for you, and you can start counseling today. But if you decide you don't vibe with the therapist you're matched with, you can switch whenever you want. It's less expensive than in-person counseling, but you're still getting the same great help from licensed professionals. A lot of people are not comfortable talking to a therapist in person, or they simply don't have the time, but with better help, you connect from anywhere you are at home, work, or on the go, and if you have trouble 
people affording it, BetterHelp even has financial aid available. You can sign up right now and save on quality professional therapy by going to betterhelp.com best. You can take a step towards supporting your own mental health and support this show at the same time by using our link to let them know we sent you. That's betterhelp.com best, and that link is in our show notes. Peter Koval wrote at Open Democracy this week, It is not surprising to hear the research findings which tell us that being lonely is the health equivalent of smoking 15 cigarettes a day Mm -hmm. or that loneliness significantly increases the risk of premature death. According to their research by the uh, Co-op and the Red Cross, loneliness affects at least 9 million people in Britain. The Campaign to End Loneliness reports that over three quarters of general practitioners say they are seeing between one and five patients a day who have come in mainly because they are lonely. Now, late night TV talk show hosts here in the States are scoffing at the idea of a ministry of uh, loneliness. The Economic Times called it weird. How serious is any epidemic of loneliness? And what do you think happens when people are in denial about an epidemic of loneliness? Well, an epidemic of loneliness is a catastrophe. And one of the people who taught me most about this is Professor John Cassiopo at Chicago University. He showed that, um, so when we're stressed, we release a hormone called cortisol. He found that being acutely lonely is as stressful as being punched in the face by a stranger. Uh, So loneliness is is a catastrophe. It increases health risks across the board for everything, physical and mental, um, mental disorders. You know, I'm uh, somewhat cynical about a British conservative government that's actually been massively attacking the social sphere, uh, now suddenly saying, oh, well, minister, we'll just create a minister who's going to solve the problem. It feels a little bit like a kind of band-aid, especially since they've been aggressively destroying collective institutions across Britain for, for you know, pretty much all of my lifetime. So I'd be somewhat skeptical about that. But the, but there are real solutions to to loneliness. And, you know, I think this is a real big driver of, of, of Trump and Brexit. I mean, I think a lot about in the, as I explained in Lost Connections and the, the run-up to the presidential election, the 2016 presidential election, I was um, I was with some people who were trying to get out the vote to stop Trump in Cleveland, in a part of Cleveland called Slavic City. And, uh, you know, it's one of those devastated parts of Cleveland that's like you know, Detroit without the poetry of the ruins, obviously crucial swing state. And we knocked, I was with Dave Fleischer, who's a guy from, um, a wonderful person from the LA LGBT Center. We were on this street, you know, it's one of those long streets where a third of the houses had been demolished, a third were abandoned, and a third still had people living in them, often behind, literally behind barbed wire. And um, we knocked on this door, and this woman answered, who I would have guessed from looking at her was 60, I actually learned from talking to her, she was, she was the same age as me at the time, which was 37. And um, she was very angry, quite articulate, quite quite an impressive, you know, she knew quite a lot. And she said this thing that absolutely, and, you know, we were trying to make the case for voting and everything. And she said this thing that really stopped me in my tracks. She was talking about what the area used to be like. And she meant to say when I was young. What she actually said is when I was alive. And I really felt not back, but it fits so much with what I've been learning from all these scientists all over the world. We live in a culture that's not meeting people's basic psychological needs. So in some, in some sense, that does make lots of people feel like they are not alive. And she's not wrong to feel that way. And I have to say, I find it very, although I 
obviously think Donald Trump is an unimaginable catastrophe and a, future to the, a threat to the future of the human race. And I think Brexit is a terrible tragedy for my, my own country, Britain. We have got to stop patronizing the people who voted for these options. We've got to stop saying that it's just because they're stupid or they're racist. Some of them are racist, but I actually don't think many of them are stupid. Um, but we, we've got to stop talking like that. This is about a crisis of unmet psychological needs. And if we're just screaming at them, they're going to be even more angry and they're going to have even more unmet needs. What will heal this is, is connection and love and compassion. Um, and we've got to be the love and compassion people. The other side is the you know, we're never going to win against Donald Trump on rage and, and abuse, right? That's, that's never, that you cannot beat him on that front. We, we can only beat him by talking in a, in, a di- in, a, in a different way, which is, I think, connected to all these. The factors that are driving disconnection and despair are the factors that are driving, I think, these weird um, and very disturbing right-wing movements across the world. Not entirely. There's a lot of other stuff going on, of course, but I think that's a big factor that's kind of underappreciated. Another cause you cite for unhappiness, depression, anxiety is discrimination from status and respect. And you write that humans have a choice. We can find practical ways to dismantle hierarchies and create a more equal place where everybody feels they have a measure of respect and status, or we can build up hierarchies and ramp up the humiliation as we are doing today. When we do that, many of us will feel we are being pushed down almost physically, and many of us will show signs of submission. We'll lower our heads and our bodies and silently say, leave me alone. You beat me. I can't take this anymore. So how much do you think increasing inequality is increasing the likelihood that we are unhappy, depressed, and anxious? The research on this is quite shocking. So one of the ways into it that I had was through this guy called Professor Robert Sapolsky. He went to live with a baboon troop in uh, Kenya when he was a young man, when he was in his early 20s. And his job was to figure, was to find out through taking blood samples, excuse me, through taking blood samples, when uh, figure out when baboons are most stressed, right? And it turns out baboons, who are some of our closest evolutionary cousins, um, they live in a very strict hierarchy. The men do, the women don't, which is interesting, but the men live in a very strict hierarchy from like, so say there's 60 men in the troop. Number one knows he's above number two, number two knows he's above number three, number 39 knows he's above number 40. And that determines things like how much food you get, whether you get to sit in the shade or you have to sit in the sun, who you get to have sex with, all of those things. And, and what he found was there were two things that caused maximum stress to um, baboons. One was when their status was insecure. So if you were being challenged for the top position, for example, and the other was if you were at the bottom of the hierarchy. And what's interesting is if you are at the bottom of the hierarchy, if you're a baboon, actually a lot of primates, what you will do is you will put your head down, you'll put your, your bottom up, and you just cover your head which looks a lot like a depressed human being. There's um, a professor called Paul Gilbert who calls it the submission response. It's basically saying, leave me alone, you beat me. And obviously baboons, there's some variation, but basically baboons always live in a hierarchy, right? But human beings, the degree to which we live in a hierarchy varies. So the United States is exceptionally unequal. Um, there's, you've got you know, um, a small number of kind of inverted commas winners at the top and a big number of inverted comma losers at the bottom, people are made to feel like they're losers. So you've got a lot, then this has been shown by Professor Richard Wilkinson, Professor Kate Pickett, you have a lot more people showing the submission response. You feel like, ah, I've been beaten. I've been, uh, you know, leave me alone. You beat me. You beat me. I'm at the bottom of the hierarchy. I can't take it. You know, we say that when we're depressed, we feel down. Um, that is 
you know, I don't think that's more than a metaphor, actually. I think that's the, a legacy of this evolutionary impulse. Uh, and uh, she was taught that by um, Professors uh, Pickett and Wilkinson. Um, and, and, and Professors Pickett and Wilkinson have shown really powerfully, I and mean, with a huge amount of data, that uh, the more unequal a state, the, the differing inequality between U.S. states explains differing levels of depression and anxiety to a significant degree, uh, different levels of inequality between countries explain uh, differing levels of anxiety and depression. So inequality is driving. You just have to think about it. If you, you know, if you just spend the day feeling like there's a bunch of people who matter, who've got all the money, and you're at the bottom and you're being kind of humiliated and you have nothing, um, that's, that's depressing. It makes you feel down, you know? Yeah, that's really amazing. You know, the one thing I was thinking about <clears throat> throughout your response, that's why I was kind of slow to get back to the microphone, uh, is <laughs> if globalization, financialization, and neoliberalism, I mean, from, from your nine causes, those seem like to be the bedrock of, I mean, for instance, uh, disconnection from the natural world that leads to, you know, uh, globalization leads to and financialization leads to more urbanization as people are moved off their land, subsistence farmers are moved off their land, and the land is sold. Uh, so if Globalization, financialization, and neoliberalism contribute to depression. To you, what explains why there is so much support uh, and uh, uh, popular support? What explains why so many people vote for policies and politicians that support globalization, financialization, neoliberalism that lead to depression? Well, I just want to um, be a little bit careful about about this. So. I believe neoliberalism is driving up some, not all, of the factors that cause depression. Neoliberalism is not the only system that does that. So Soviet communism, for example, in a very different way, drove up huge amounts of the, the, the huge amount of the factors that drive um, depression and anxiety. So I'm not saying neoliberalism is a cause of depression and anxiety, but it feeds some of the causes. Do you see what I mean? It's a slight difference, but I think it's important to say that. Um, in terms of why people support it, well, I think part of the issue, and I thought this a lot when I was speaking to loads of Trump voters, um, is a profoundly atomized society. We were talking about how lonely our society is. You've got a society where more people have no close friends they could turn to in a crisis than any other option, and more than half of Americans don't have 500 bucks for if a disaster comes along put aside, right? Because they've been treated so badly um, by this system. That creates a real, remember what you're saying, there's an innate human need to feel you belong, right? And I think one, one of the things that happens is in an atomized, lonely society, you have a desperate hunger for belonging. And because we're not meeting that deep underlying cause by changing the way we live, it's very tempting to look for markers of belonging in politics like whiteness. Or I'm not, don't misunderstand me, I'm not apologizing for this. Uh, I'm trying to help us understand why it's happening. Uh, things like whiteness or the kind of overt racism of Trump or the, you know, the kind of um, jingoism of, uh, of Trump or the Brexit campaign. I think that's, that's a big part of what's happening, that people are looking to that kind of politics to meet these, these deeper unmet needs. Now, it doesn't meet those needs, right? It's like a, you know, it's like trying, trying to deal with your hunger by eating loads of candy. It'll actually make you sick, but it, but I think it's, it's 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 not a it's an understandable response to people who don't appear to be offering it offered anything better. It's a tragic response, but I think it's an understandable one.
And now for our new segment, the Midterms Minute, a look at the candidates and races that you need to know about, shout about, and support to make sure we have a blue tsunami on November 6th. In our last two segments, we spotlighted the Minnesota and Wisconsin primaries, which are both happening on August 14th. If you missed those segments, check out our previous episodes or visit bestoftheleft.com slash activism. Today, we'll round out the August 14th primaries with spotlights on Connecticut and Vermont. As usual, we're going to throw a lot at you, so keep an ear out for your state or district and check the episode notes for more details. There's a competitive Democratic primary for governor in Connecticut. Businessman Ned Lamont is the state working family's party choice and is running on criminal justice reform and a $15 minimum wage. His opponent is currently mayor of Bridgeport, but previously went to jail for seven years after being convicted of extortion and bribery while in office. Lamont is polling neck and neck with the expected Republican nominee. Politico has called this a race to watch because, as you may recall, governors elected this year will be involved in their state's redistricting process following the 2020 census. Connecticut's 5th District is another race where Republicans have a chance in November, and so the Democratic primary has been heated. But Johanna Hayes, the 2016 National Teacher of the Year, has grabbed national attention with her energy and inspiring life story. Unlike her opponent, she supports single-payer and has received endorsements that include the Working Families Party and AFL-CIO Connecticut. If she wins, she could become the first African-American to represent the state. Connecticut's Democratic Party establishment has expressed concern about her lack of political experience, but she was drafted to run and has a strong ally in Senator Chris Murphy. If you're a Connecticut resident, your voter registration, whether online, mailed, or in person, must be received by August 9th. Turning now to Vermont, Democratic incumbent Representative Peter Welch is facing a primary challenge for his congressional seat, which is the only House seat Vermont has. A few months ago, it came to light that Welch received campaign contributions and bought and sold stock from the very companies lobbying for the prescription drug bill he championed. Thank goodness Vermonters have a choice. Doctor and veteran Dan Freelich is running a campaign primarily focused on campaign finance reform and anti-corruption that also includes Medicare for All, a green revolution, and other progressive policies. Also in Vermont, Republican Phil Scott, a first-term and well-liked governor, is up for re-election. As we've already mentioned, governorships are critical this year. In the Democratic primary, there are two front-runners. Christine Helquist is the former CEO of the successful Vermont Electricity Cooperative. She's running on a progressive platform, touting her leadership experience and utilities, and her campaign is the first ever in Vermont to organize a union contract with campaign staff. If she won in November, she would also be the first openly transgender governor in the country. Environmentalist James Ellers is the other primary frontrunner. He's also running on progressive policies, although the self-proclaimed provocateur has some strange tweets about unions and abortion in the past. He says his views have evolved since then, and the AFL-CIO has endorsed him. It's also worth noting that a 13-year-old, Ethan Sonborn, is another legitimate candidate in the primary race. Though he likely won't win, he's taking his campaign very seriously with a message that is all about inspiring young people to get politically engaged. Engaged. And finally, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, the most well-liked politician in the country, is facing two primary opponents. 
One is a self-proclaimed Clintonian and Obamacrat who moved to Vermont after the 2016 presidential election with the specific goal of unseating Sanders. The other is a farmer running as an independent with a focus on fighting climate change. He says he likes Bernie, but is concerned that his focus is too national and that he'll leave the office to run for president again in 2020. If you're a Vermont resident, early voting has already begun and you must be registered by primary day, August 14th, to vote in the primaries. We want to emphasize registration cutoff dates and absentee ballot request and submission dates are different for each state, sometimes even each county. We highly suggest reviewing your state's information and voter ID law restrictions at rockthevote.org as soon as possible to ensure you are able to vote in both the primaries and general elections. We know you heard a lot of names and dates today, but we hope you'll take a moment to check out the segment notes, which include all of the links to this information, as well as additional resources. And today's midterms minute, just like every activism segment we produce, is archived and organized under the activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. So if building the bluest of blue waves is important to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about supporting progressive candidates across the country via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too. Today's episode is sponsored by the Dollar Shave Club, which is almost a misnomer these days, as they now go well beyond just shaving. They deliver everything you need to look, feel, and smell your best. Shampoo, conditioner, body wash, toothpaste, hair gel, even a wipe that'll leave your tush feeling tingly clean. For instance, their amber and lavender calming body cleanser is really something to behold. I've never smelled anything like it. But all of Dollar Shave Club's products are great and made with top-shelf ingredients that won't break your budget. Plus, shipping is free with your membership. And since they have so many great items you're going to want to try, you're going to want to get their Daily Essential Starter Set for just 5 bucks. It comes with Body Cleanser, One Wipe Charlie's, their amazing butt wipes, their world-famous Shave Butter, and their best razor, the Six Blade Executive. Keep the blades coming for a few more bucks a month and add in shampoo, toothpaste, or anything else you need. Check it all out at dollarshaveclub.com best. That's dollarshaveclub.com slash best. Why does fear lend itself, as you write it does, to top-down authoritarianism and not to people-powered democracy? Because people-powered democracy involves an element of hope. You, you can people-power your way to a better future if you believe in some optimism, optimistic sort of arc of progress. So if you really believe that we can make the future better, that we can do a whole bunch of things technologically or in terms of the ideas that we circulate that are going to make lives better for many people, well, then you can decentralize power downwards. But if you believe that everything is bad, that everyone is a potential threat, that everyone is a potential predator, that we live in a zero-sum world where my happiness relies on somebody else's unhappiness and that conversely, their happiness relies on them being able to take something away from me. In that environment, you're much more willing to trade, for example, your liberties away for your security. So you're much more willing to tolerate incredible intrusions into privacy if the leaders promise security in exchange, or you're much more willing to tolerate a government that says, as Donald Trump repeatedly said in the presidential campaign, that he would bring back what he called the torture against terrorism suspects. And, you know, that fascinated me because a core part of the Enlightenment project, going back for the last 200 plus years, 
has been this philosophical notion that there are certain inalienable human rights. And one of the follow-ons from that is that we don't, as a society, condone things like torture. We just don't do it. That The harm that we do through implementing torture regimes are so extreme that it becomes taboo. And Donald Trump didn't just say, well, I'll bring back torture in secret. It will be a sort of dirty little secret of the security state. What he said is, I'll do it in public. He basically said, I'm going to bring everyone into this grubbiness because I'm going to tell you in advance that we're going to endorse the torture and let's see if the public endorses me for it. And, you know, in a moment like this where you can have the most powerful person on earth talking about the torture, talking about the police roughing up criminal suspects, talking about wholesale deportations, and even hostage-taking. I mean, this idea of, well, I don't dislike the darker kids, but I'm going to take away their legal residency and work rights unless you pay for the building of a wall, which is basically what Trump said. That's extraordinary, because what he's done is he's basically saying there are 800,000 people in this country who we can hold political hostage. Now, that's not the way that complex, sophisticated democracies are supposed to behave, but it is the way that demagogues behave. And my argument in the book is that in a moment of fear, we're willing to cede power to charismatic demagogues in a way that in normal, healthier societal moments, we just wouldn't do. That if we were a healthier, happier society, if we were in a better place communally, Donald Trump would be laughed off the stage. But in an era in which we're fearful... And in an era in which we fear that our future is going to look far worse than our past, Trump becomes plausible. And we've seen this in different moments in history in different countries over the years where strong men demagogues have come in and they've essentially used fear to seduce an audience. And we know what happens in in situations like that. And it's never good. It always, always, always ends badly. Because in the end, that vision of humanity is unsustainable. And I really do. I believe that from the core of my being, that as a species, we are better than this. We might, we might go through appalling moments of fear. But as a species, in the end, we are far better than Donald Trump gives us credit for being. You write that deeply authoritarian regimes playing on the anxieties and insecurities of large numbers of voters have in recent years been elected in Turkey, Russia, India, and many other countries. How much are political divisions, how much is any political division driven by fear? That is, politics is a fight between those who would exploit fear and those who try to downplay any fears the voting public may have, or maybe even about competing fears. You know, it's a great question. And actually, a number of interviewers have asked me this in the last couple of weeks. And I do think that in some ways, not in all ways, but in some ways, fear is the litmus test of our time. And how one responds, whether or not one has a sort of fear-based impression of community or a hope-based impression of community, is the great divide, which then leads to a whole bunch of other policies. What kind of immigration policies we support? whether or not we're tolerant and celebratory of sexual and gender diversity, whether or not we tolerate or fear racial diversity, that on a whole bunch of levels, fear becomes the great divider. And so if you go back to the 20th century, you had these huge ideological debates around communism and fascism and capitalism and so on. And they defined human history for the better part of 100 years. If you look at what's happening at the moment and why are foreign policy is being crafted the way it is, or why our um, national security strategies are being crafted the way they are, and so on and so forth. Increasingly, it seems to me, 
that fear is the great divider of our time. Now, you know, it doesn't mean that people on the optimistic side of the spectrum have nothing to fear, because there clearly are things out there that are scary, are worthy of fear, and are worthy of attention. So I'm not a Pollyanna here. I'm not saying there are no terrorism threats or no nuclear threats, etc. There clearly are. And we have to think about them carefully, and we have to work out coherent, sensible policy approaches. But to base our entire life experience around a sense of worst-case scenario, that to me is soul-crushing. And I don't, I don't believe a society as diverse as America can survive very long in a fear-based mode. I think at some point we're going to have to work out a way beyond this morass that we currently find ourselves in. The tradition about the life of the Buddha was that he was born to wealth, but when he became aware of the suffering of the poor, he could no longer live in the isolation and comfort of the aristocracy into which he was born. You know, people that are born on third base, uh, like our current president, often seem to just be so narcissistic that they assume that their life is the way everyone else's life was, and if, if you're poor and suffering, it's your fault. You did something wrong. But, but the Buddha recognized that he was insulated from suffering, so he became initially an ascetic monk, living at the point of starvation and dehydration for years. And, and even the, the, the Christian mystics, uh, the, the Desert Fathers that I studied a lot in my doctoral work would say, if, if you never eat your fill of bread, you never desire meat. If you never slake your thirst with enough water, you never desire wine. And so they kept themselves dehydrated and half-starved in order to maintain this ascetic life. But eventually the Buddha realized that both opulent wealth and extreme poverty are deceptions. He taught that the body itself is a vessel that requires nourishment and rest and self-care. So he encouraged his followers to find a middle path, a life of moderation in all things, but no extremes. No extremes either in, <coughs> in self-indulgence or in self-abnegation. There's absurdity at both ends, both for us as individuals and for our society. And yet I want to say, hopefully make you aware, that almost everything in society, particularly in corporate news, pushes us to extremes. I don't want to be one of these old guys that's always saying, well, back in the day, so much better. But in truth, when we had an evening newscast that was an hour long, and there were only three stations, and they were, they were all trying to tell us what happened in the world, conservatives and liberals, Democrats and Republicans, blacks and whites, Watch TV, and even though it was filtered and, you know, there were things that they didn't report on, things they wouldn't say, the whole of the country had basically the same set of facts that we were reacting to. But the 24-hour news cycle, you choose to watch a self-congratulatory conservative source or you choose to watch 
a self-congratulatory liberal source, and those of us who feed on liberal media cannot understand why Trump is not in prison already. And people on the other extreme cannot understand what is wrong with liberals, that they're not enjoying all of the wonderful successes we're having, that there's no longer a nuclear threat from Korea, and, and China is no longer exploiting uh, trade imbalances, and the tax cuts put more money in all of our pockets. There's, there's a, a lack of comprehension because we no longer share facts. And even the move... Mel, I know you're trying to follow along, and this is all ad-lib, buddy. <laughs> uh, even the fact that we went from political candidates being selected in a smoke-filled room by uh, a political party, and then we went to the poll and decided between two or three people, switching to primaries puts this clown show up on a stage where the most extreme candidates get all of the coverage. You could put an absolute genius in the middle of a debate with eight or nine candidates, and the camera would never turn to that competent, qualified person because it's the extremists, the ones that are saying the most outrageous things that are getting all of the attention. And, and I just think we all need to be able to step back from that and say, we are being manipulated to think always at the extremes without ever looking for that middle path. Buddhism, unlike Christianity, is not wedded to a set of creedal claims that followers are supposed to simply believe. It's not a matter of getting the right doctrines in your head. Buddhism finds deep spirituality in a devotion to the truth, but in following a way of living, the eightfold path, which is the fourth of the noble truths. And none of those eightfold uh, path uh, statements would really sound foreign to the ears of progressive Christians or reformed Jews or uh, the middle uh, section of Islam. The eightfold path is about living a spiritual life of disciplined moderation and devotion to leading a good and helpful life. The path guides you to a right perspective, right thought, right speech, right action, right livelihood, sincere effort, mindfulness, and awareness. I suppose that most religions have a, a kind of centering mantra that uh, practitioners can return to in troubled times. Jews and Christians <coughs> have always loved the 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd. Christians will oftentimes recite the Lord's Prayer, Our Father, which art in heaven. <clears throat> and we know, at least from the news, the Muslim use of, of the call Allah Akbar, uh, God is great, or I, I think a better understanding of that is God is greater, God is greater than the current challenge, the current crisis, the current fear. The mantra that is most often repeated in Buddhism I find it to be very attractive uh, among the world religions. And I'm not going to try to uh, say any of it in the Burmese language, but there are just a couple of words that I want you to know. And I apologize for how many n numbers are in this sermon, the four, the eight, the three, but, but there are three jewels to Buddhism. <laughs> the, the first um, 
is the Buddha who is the teacher. The second word I'd like for you to learn is the, the Dharma, which means the, the collection of teachings, the beliefs. And the third is the Sangha or the community. So someone who is becoming a Buddhist or being ordained a monk will repeat the mantra, I take refuge in the Buddha, my teacher. I take refuge in the Dharma, the teachings, the shared beliefs. I take refuge in the Sangha. I take refuge in my community of faith. I find my peace, my security. I find faith in a teacher who is reliable, in a body of truth which I can, can ascribe to. And finally, my refuge, my certainty, my confidence, my courage is rooted within my faith community. All three of those. I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dharma. I take refuge in the Sangha. Now, we live in a world that is, uh, you have to admit, is seriously out of balance. The predominant religions of the world create terrorists, create suicide bombers. It also creates misogynists and homophobes. And the worst may be that they create indifference about real-world real suffering by obsessing about other-world eternity. We live among consumers and hoarders and out-of-control capitalists and corporations that can influence elections and even have a religion that, though still lacking a moral compass, continues to be a kind of spiritual pornography. For your own sake, for the sake of the world and its future, I encourage you all to find a middle path, a path of mindful, disciplined living, and let us together take refuge in what is true, and especially to take refuge in one another. Within the United States, within the European Union, challenges to globalization first came from the left, but then came more forcefully from the right. As you started seeing populist movements, which by the way are often cynically funded by right-wing billionaires intent on reducing government constraints on their business interests, these movements tapped the unease that was felt by many people who lived outside of the urban cores, fears that economic security was slipping away, that their social status and privileges were eroding, that their cultural identities were being threatened by outsiders, somebody that didn't look like them or sound like them or pray as they did. And perhaps more than anything else, the devastating impact of the 2008 financial crisis in which the reckless behavior of financial elites resulted in years of hardship for ordinary people all around the world, made all the previous assurances of experts ring hollow. All, all those assurances that somehow financial regulators knew what they were doing, that somebody was minding the store, that global economic integration was an unadulterated good because of the actions taken by governments during and after that crisis, including, I should add, by aggressive steps by 
my administration, the global economy has now returned to healthy growth. But the credibility of the international system, the faith in experts in places like Washington or Brussels, all that had taken a blow. And a politics of fear and resentment and retrenchment began to appear. And that kind of politics is now on the move. It's on a move at a pace that would have seemed unimaginable just a few years ago. I am not being alarmist. I am simply stating the facts. Look around. Strongman politics are ascendant suddenly, whereby elections and some pretense of democracy are maintained, the form of it, but those in power seek to undermine every institution or norm that gives democracy meaning. In the West, you've got far-right parties that oftentimes are based not just on platforms of protectionism and closed borders, but also on barely hidden racial nationalism. Many developing countries now are looking at China's model of authoritarian control combined with mercantilist capitalism as preferable to the messiness of democracy. Who needs free speech as long as the economy is going good? The free press is under attack. Censorship and state control of media is on the rise. Social media, once seen as a mechanism to promote knowledge and understanding and solidarity, has proved to be just as effective promoting hatred and paranoia and propaganda and conspiracy theories. So, on Madiba's 100th birthday, we now stand at a crossroads, a moment in time at which two very different visions of humanity's future compete for the hearts and the minds of citizens around the world. Two different stories, two different narratives about who we are and who we should be. How should we respond? Should we see that wave of hope that we felt with Madiba's release from prison, from the Berlin Wall coming down? Should, should we see that hope that we had as naive and misguided? Should we understand the last 25 years of global integration as nothing more than a detour from the previous inevitable cycle of history where might makes right and politics is a hostile competition between tribes and races and religions, and nations compete in a zero-sum game, constantly teetering on the edge of conflict until full-blown war breaks out? Is that what we think? Let me tell you what I believe. I believe in Nelson Mandela's vision. I believe in a vision shared by Gandhi and King and Abraham Lincoln. I believe in a vision of equality and justice and freedom and multiracial democracy built on the premise that all people are created equal and they're endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights. And I believe that a world governed by such principles 
is possible and that it can achieve more peace and more cooperation in pursuit of a common good. That's what I believe. And I believe we have no choice but to move forward. That those of us who believe in democracy and civil rights and a common humanity have a better story to tell. And I believe this not just based on sentiment. I believe it based on hard evidence. The fact that the world's most prosperous and successful societies, the ones with the highest living standards and the highest levels of satisfaction among their people, happen to be those which have most closely approximated the liberal progressive ideal that we talk about and have nurtured the talents and contributions of all their citizens. The fact that authoritarian governments have been shown time and time again to breed corruption because they're not accountable to repress their people, to lose touch eventually with reality, to engage in bigger and bigger lies that ultimately result in economic and political and cultural and scientific stagnation. Look at, look at history. Look at the facts. The fact that countries which rely on rabid nationalism and xenophobia and doctrines of tribal, racial, or religious superiority as their main organizing principle, the thing that, that holds people together, eventually those countries find themselves consumed by civil war or external war. Check the history books. The fact that technology cannot be put back in a bottle. So we're stuck with the fact that we now live close together and populations are going to be moving and environmental challenges are not going to go away on their own. So that the only way to effectively address problems like climate change or mass migration or pandemic disease will be to develop systems for more international cooperation, not less. We have a better story to tell. But to say that our vision for the future is better is not to say that it will inevitably win. Because history also shows the power of fear. We've just heard clips today, starting with This Is Hell, speaking with Sasha Abramsky about the rise of fear and its influence on American society. Then we heard Martha Nussbaum on The Brian Lehrer Show talking about fear as the root of our political polarization. Then there was another clip from This Is Hell, this time talking with Johan Hari, making the connection between individual psychological needs, societal breakdowns, and the tragic yet understandable response to turn to solutions like Brexit and Trump. We then heard today 
today's edition of our Midterms Minute segment, followed by yet a third clip from This Is Hell. I guess if you want to hear about fear and disconnection, it makes sense to go to a show called This Is Hell. Anyway, the third clip was a continuation of the Sasha Abramsky discussion on how fear opens the door to demagogues. Then we heard a portion of Dr. Roger Ray's progressive faith sermon titled Escape from Suffering, about finding the middle path for a more balanced and mentally healthy life, as described by Buddhist teachings. And finally, we just heard a part of Barack Obama's speech from the Nelson Mandela Centennial Celebration discussing the competing visions for the future that basically break down to a closed and isolationist fear versus an open and cooperative hope. For further exploration on this subject, I would say that Obama's entire speech is worth a listen. You can find it on YouTube. You may want to crank it up to one and a half times speed. It's a little long. And of course, he talks pretty slowly and takes long pauses. Uh, also, I would recommend the entire episode of The Ezra Klein Show, in which Johan Hari is interviewed. Uh, we heard from Johan today a little bit, but he talks in this uh, Ezra Klein Show about his new book, Lost Connections, uncovering the real causes of depression and the unexpected solutions. Johan gets in most of his usual talking points. I've heard him interviewed over several different shows now about this book, but in the Ezra Klein show, Ezra pushes him on a couple of points that made Johan dive a little bit deeper and explore the topic uh, more from the perspective of criticizing the aspects of society that are pushing people toward fear, depression, Brexit, Trump, etc., and this continuing cycle that, that uh, is driving us in that direction. Uh, I hope to use clips from that show at, at some episode in the future, but the whole discussion is worth hearing, so check that out. As always, you can find links to each of these segments we've heard today in the show notes for easy reference and sharing, and now we'll hear from you. This is Kim from Chicago, and this message is in response to Ralph's voicemail from July 17th. Ralph, I grew up not far from you in Springfield, Massachusetts, and I was conservative when I was your age and well into adulthood. There are a lot of reasons why I've moved to the left as I've aged, but I thought I would offer the issue that first caused me to shift my worldview. That was medical bankruptcy. Imagine you work hard, don't spend extravagantly, save a good portion of your earnings. Then one day your doctor tells you that you have cancer. You did everything right, but now you have to lose everything you've built up because you've hit a cap on what your employer-offered insurance will cover. The emergency room, which we often call the health care provider of last resort, cannot provide you with the recurring treatments you need to save your life. And so the only thing you can do is liquidate everything you own, rack up huge debts you can't pay, and end up declaring bankruptcy. Realizing how unfair this is and learning that universal health care could prevent this for everyone is what initially moved me to the left. So that's you know, an example where I think from a conservative point of view, you can do everything right and still end up in trouble. And I just think that that's a terrible thing. And that was what had me start researching things like best of the left. So uh, welcome. You're among friends. Thanks, Jay. Bye. Hey, Jay, this is Ariel, your member from Memphis. I'm calling in response to these comment about the lack of a philosophy on the left. And I actually think that part of the issue is he's conflating philosophy and history. So the conservatives have this great history of their philosophy going back however many hundreds of years, because it's always been the same. They can always say small government, low taxation, whereas as you pointed out, our philosophy is find the problem of the day and find the solution of the day that will work for it. And so our 
philosophy is constantly changing and we don't have that 200 years to point back to. And so the lack of a consistent history is going to happen because the problems are always changing and we're looking forward instead of looking back to the good old days. And so I think that the lack of a history shouldn't really be held against us because we're dealing with the issues we're currently facing. And to V's point of what the rest of New York is like, I get it. I actually went to school in upstate New York and know that it's a very different place than New York City. So that would be my one point is history and philosophy are not the same things. Thanks. And thanks for all the work you guys do. Bye. Hello, Jay. This is V from Central New York. Thank you very much for answering the question which I put forward directly. It's quite interesting, your answer and two other things that have to do with that answer, which you couldn't have known about. The first one is the referenced conversation that you know I referred to. Part of that conversation was my argument to this progressive, to this person who said he was progressive, that to me, progressivism, not that it was similar to, uh, my, my actual argument was that it was really no different than conservatism. And that argument is based on two important facts about progressivism. The first one is progressives talk a very good game, but they rarely ever show up to play, let alone to get off the field and practice. In other words, they, for all the talk that they do, they don't have much to show for it. And two, progressives have proven to be almost complicit with the things that conservatives have done over the last 20 years. I ascribe that to a lack of foundation, a lack of philosophical foundation. Considering that progressivism only appeared generally in the early part of the 1900s, and didn't reappear again until the Clinton years. It wasn't around in the 60s or the 70s, even the 50s. There is definitely a lacking there when it comes to philosophy. The second interesting point is the day that you posted your response, I was at my job and we had a training that had to do with problem solving and project development. I listened to your response after I went to that training. I didn't even know the response was there. And I realized almost immediately while listening to your response, what the progressive problem is. One, there is no, there is no philosophy. There is nothing that goes back a hundred or 200 or 300 years. Socialism has that. They may not be mutually exclusive, but they are definitely not alike. Socialism has a foundation, a philosophical foundation, somewhat well-developed. It was a lot better developed 100 years ago than it is now. Whereas progressivism seems to be able to graft itself onto whatever it thinks is necessary to solve the problems that it believes the society is facing. Rather, we then go into moralistics, or immoralistic. Uh, that's a whole nother thing. But progressivism needs to define itself then. I think if 
progressivism does not come up with a philosophy that works and a philosophy that it can trace back at least a hundred years. It will not hold power. It cannot hold power. Ideas, which is kind of what you were also discussing in your response, only have weight in the public mind if you can see a connection, if the public mind can see a connection, should I say, to a historical past. I may not like what conservatives have to say, but I can go and I can pick up the conservative mind, which purports and claims that it could trace its philosophical underpinnings back to the revolutionary days. And even before that, this is what is missing for progressives. Socialists don't have that problem. Socialists can ground some of what they're, a lot of what they're talking about, if they wanted to, in the concepts of commonwealth. Morals for progressives may be the same as commonwealth. There's this book called The Moral Commonwealth. Some of you may want to read that. There's a, um, another series of books called The American Commonwealth that was written at the beginning, I think, of the 1900s, about the beginning of the 1900s or the end of the uh, 1800s. Those might be great starts when we're thinking about a philosophy to underpin progressivism, because without it, your ideas will float, but they'll never catch on. The philosophy is what allows you to govern. It's what allows you to build your institutional prowess. Without it, you will never have power. Thank you for your response. And I, I do hope other people um, have ideas for books. Keep up the good work, man. Peace. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202 999 First of all, thanks to Kim for her story. She called in in response to our new young conservative friend, Ralph, who, who basically called in to ask hey, lefties, what's up with you guys? And I think Kim's story was an excellent example of how a real-life event uh, can and should make a person rethink how the government does or should work. Uh, so I, I loved her story, of course, as much as I hate medical bankruptcy. So if you have a similar, wildly different, or any kind of story along those lines that uh, helps explain how you came to your way of thinking— or as the way Ralph framed his question to us, what's it like to be on the left in addition to why are you on the left? Uh, so keep those calls coming in. Now to V from New York, I think I have some some thoughts on this. I think there's some concrete thoughts. I think that V, myself, Ariel from Memphis, we've all been sort of circling around the real crux of the issue here. And I think I figured out why. Um, we didn't dig deep enough before. I think we got distracted because we were talking about conservative philosophy as small government, low taxes kind of policies. And that and that, that might have been my fault. I, I think I jumped to that. But by using that framing, that led me to this parallel analysis of progressive philosophy as 
what sort of policies we like, which are this ever-changing set uh, meant to address problems as they arise. But if we go one level deeper, I think it becomes more clear and actually kind of obvious. So to back up, conservative philosophy is not small government and low taxes. Their philosophy is that the government can't do a good job of helping citizens lead better lives. It is on the basis of this philosophy that you come to the idea of having a minimalist government and low taxes that pretty much only keeps the peace through the use of the police and the military and maybe helps solve some disputes through the use of the courts, but other than that, the government should stay out of it. Now, with that understanding of the conservative philosophy, the alternative, I think, becomes pretty clear. The progressive philosophy is that government can and does actually make life better for citizens. And it is on this philosophy that we build every policy idea progressives come to support, from social benefit programs like Social Security, universal health care, etc., to regulation on everything from banks to pollution and everything in between. And as Obama just said in that speech we heard today, this isn't wishful thinking. It's based on experience and real-world outcomes. He pointed out what progressives have known for decades— the countries that most closely approximate the progressive vision of robust government intervention combined with a regulated market economy produce the happiest people in the world. So it sure seems like there's a lot of evidential support for the progressive philosophy of government intervention. And maybe it's that simple for progressives. It's actually so simple that we take it for granted and look straight past it most of the time. Our philosophy is that the government can and should be used for good, period. Everything else is built on top of that. Now, if you have thoughts on that or anything else, as always, keep the comments coming in. The number again, 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on iTunes and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can be found in the show notes, on the blog, and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Bestoftheleft.com.